Kim. So hello and welcome to Radio, which is a podcast and for the first time ever a, a video podcast uh, made by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's made by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. And I'm your host, uh, Ross Drakes. We actually have a second host, Rich Maholland, who's locked in a different house somewhere else in South Africa. Um, so he's not going to join us today. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Ross. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so my first question to all our guests is always the same. Um, you know, give us your, your business's elevator pitch. Uh, so We Teach Me is my business that, I, uh, that most people know me for. Think of it like an Airbnb, but for classes and workshops. So painting classes, pottery classes, coffee making classes, cooking classes, basically every class that you can imagine under the sun. We've got it. We'll tell you who the best teachers are. I'll tell you when they teach, where they teach, how much they cost. You can look at the pictures, you can look at the reviews. And basically, we make it really easy for people to find the best, most popular classes all around Australia. Uh, we serve two sides of the market. So we serve the class providers, people who offer classes and want to make a bit of money off their passion. And then we serve the people who are looking for classes. So think of it like a marketplace. It's quite interesting, actually, when uh, I, I think I'm terrible at pitching my business, Russ. And I always change my pitch depending on who I'm who I'm sharing it with. So with tech people, I say marketplace. And then with people not so techy, I say, think of it like a an eBay, but instead of bidding, it's, it's classes and I'm just really terrible <laughs> at pitching my business. And just, I do cool stuff. So let's just leave it at that. <laughs> okay, right. So how did you, I mean, what did you, did you wake up one morning and this was a brilliant idea? How did you, how did you end up in We Teach Me? Tell us, tell us a bit of your journey. Absolutely. Uh, my, I come from a large family. Mum is one of 20 and dad is wow. one of 15. And we discover a few more secret brothers and sisters for dad every year, which is quite funny. That's another story in itself, which I'll happily share with you another time, Russ. <laughs> Probably <laughs> not this format here. Uh, yeah, but, uh, in the second episode. <laughs> in the second, yeah. <laughs> That's it. And what happened was uh, in my immediate family, which is my mother, my father, and my sister, we sat down all together uh, one year and we said, let's examine all the powerful and influential families in Australia. Because one thing we do know is that success leaves clues. Uh, success doesn't happen by accident. There is usually a pattern of behavior. And if you can identify those patterns, then you can repl replicate those patterns. And so we had a look at all the most powerful and influential families in Australia, and we discovered three things. Uh, the first one was any family that was in natural resources uh, had a high degree of influence. Any family that was in the real estate market had a high degree of influence. And then also the new wave of wealth that was coming through Australia, which is technology. And uh, my family said to me, Kim, we don't really have expertise in the technology sector. We want to send you out so you can learn how to start and scale a technology company. Do that and then bring all your learnings back into the family. And so when I had a thought about how I wanted to start my technology company, I thought about what is something which I'm passionate about. Uh, learning, learning is a value that my family emphasizes over and over and over again. And so I thought We Teach Me would be a wonderful business to start, learn how to start and learn how to scale, just because this idea of democratized education, making learning accessible to everyone, I thought that was such a beautiful idea. And if I was going to spend a lot of my time on starting and scaling a company, then I would want to invest that time in something which I'm passionate about and hits on a core value. 
So, so is it a family business or was this just your family sort of sending you off in a direction and you, and you, you know, you, you sort of took it and, and ran with it? The second one, the family sent me off to really learn my lessons. And I'm glad they did that rather than joining the family straight away. Uh, it was good for me to learn my lessons outside of the family and then bring it back. Uh, I think the lessons learned outside of that, the family, I felt the pain a bit more. I learned the lessons a bit more. I appreciate what my family have done a lot more. Um, so it's really the sense that I can go out there, make my mistakes, learn my lessons, and then come back into the family. And how did how did We Teach Me start? Like, where, where did you find that idea? You know, so now you, I know you're searching for it, but how did you actually discover this? And are you technically brilliant, or did you find other people who are technically brilliant to build the whole thing for you? Am I brilliant? Absolutely not. Uh, I. <laughs> it's it's so funny if you ask my best friend this question she will tell you, she will start laughing at you and she goes, Kim, <laughs> actually, I think my closest family, my closest friends, my closest associates con constantly underestimate me, Ross. <laughs> they basically think I'm the village idiot. But what, what I do do really well is that I thrive in environments where I feel like I'm the, I'm not the smartest person in the room. Those are the type of environments that I thrive in because I'm happy saying I'm not the smart, smartest person in the room because I learn from people. And that's, that's really how I learn. I learn from people. I watch them. I see how they do things. Um, I pick up the patterns of behavior. I reverse engineer how results are achieved. And then I just copy paste essentially. And I think that's one of the, the important things about what I do. I don't think there's any brilliance there. I think it's just listening and watching very, very carefully and then having the discipline to execute. So, I mean, are there, are there sort of skills or strategies that you employ when you're listening and observing, or is it just like a natural, a natural thing that you've been doing your whole life? That's a good question. I've never really thought about it before. Let me think. I think innately I'm a very curious person. And when I sit in front of you, for example, even though you say you're interviewing me, my inclination is to just throw 20 different questions at you because I want to learn all about Ross. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to know what, how, what makes you get out of bed in the morning. I want to know your deepest, darkest fears. I want to know your inner pain. Tell, I mean, share it all with me, Ross, and then we'll, over the next 45 minutes, we'll solve all of it. <laughs> but I want to know about you. Uh, and yeah. I think as a consequence of that, by learning more about you, I also pick up the patterns of behavior that allow you to succeed and the patterns of behavior that allow you to be who you are and what makes you successful and what makes you endearing and what makes you charming and what makes you nice to be around. Those are the things you pick up. And I think for me, when I'm around that enough or when someone is around that enough and they listen, then you can't help but pick up these things unless you're a total idiot, I guess, which is me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know so what I mean? You've always been quietly observing. Yeah, totally. Um, I like this idea, you know, because I'm also a very, very curious um, person um, I, I, I too like to ask a million questions uh, I, I think a really successful meeting is one that you leave having uh, you know not not answered anything when all you've done is just asked a million questions of the person that you met mm. because they leave going wow he's 
really understands me and he gets me. So, so I love that. But I've never really thought of this idea of looking for patterns and pulling out the, the patterns. Um, so, so, so are you the technical brains behind We Teach Me or did you hire, hire technical people to build it for you and just assimilate all the information using your curiosity superpower? I definitely don't think I'm definitely 100% not the technical brains. Uh, we brought on a business partner that is very strong technically uh, to bring this vision to life. Uh, when people ask me what I do at We Teach Me, uh, I usually respond by the Coke and Mars bars and just generally keep the team happy. For me, I, I would say my first five, six years of We Teach Me was really about what are the gaps in skill sets that we have at We Teach Me. And if we don't have the talent to to fill those gaps and I'm just going to learn how to do it and I'm going to fill it up. So I would say very similar to many, many stories, first five, six years, I was wearing different hats all the time, product dev, sales, customer support, uh, just everything, office manager, everything. And early on in the We Teach Me story, uh, we didn't have someone that could do the uh, wireframes and the UX and how all the technology piece came together and flowed together and how it worked. And we were hitting our heads up against this challenge for months. And then it came to a point where I said, you know what, we can't bring on someone with that skill set. Over this weekend, I'm just going to sit down and learn how to wireframe. I'm going to learn how to understand how pages flow together and what is intuitive and what makes sense as a customer. And over that weekend, I wireframed the entire platform, all the pages, all the flows, everything. And it was just something which kind of needed to be done and no one was around to do it. So I just stepped up and I did it. And what's really interesting about that experience is that one of my biggest learnings there is when you're in a position or a situation where it's necessary, then that necessity will inspire genius. And that's just really like been that. my my learning that one, if you if you need to do it, then just do it, no excuses. And every skill is learnable. It doesn't require a genius. I think it just requires a bit of pattern recognition and common sense. So how much of that work, how much of that weekend's work still exists on the platform today? Oh, good question. I would say a good 70%. Oh, wow. Yeah. We've changed and chopped and changed and developed and morphed and grew a lot, but the core of it, I would say, is still there. And what's actually, I've never revealed this before, but what's really interesting is early on in the journey, uh, we were approached by uh, competitor competitors uh, or people who were interested in investing. And rookie mistake, I shared all my wireframes with some of these people. Fast forward three or four months, uh, their new websites incorporate a lot of the wireframes that I shipped. <laughs> and that was a mistake that I made early on, which I quickly learned from. So you don't do that anymore? No, no. Sometimes if I share yeah. wireframes, I make uh, intentional mistakes just to see what happens. <laughs> like a tiny little um, um, landmine that they might step on if they copy you. Yeah, absolutely. So instead of saying a create profile, let's change that button with a delete your profile, and et cetera, et cetera. Just little, little things just to see what happens, I think, is, a, again, from a, from a perspective of curiosity more than anything else. So, so I just I want to sort of change change direction here for a, a brilliant mm -hmm. because I like this idea of necessity will inspire genius and mm -hmm. 
before we obviously hit the record button, we were talking about this uh, coronavirus thing that's happening in the world and how it's yes. affected people. Um, will you just share sort of what your team has done? You know, because you're you're an eventing business, you you, you put people in rooms together, which is obviously now um, not allowed. And uh, you know, even if it was allowed, I think people are too scared to do it anyway. So so how's that? How's it affected your business? And what have you guys done to to survive it? Great question. And do you know it, it's, it had a devastating impact on my business uh, as soon as the government made announcements in terms of restrictions for face-to-face contact. Uh, we saw our revenues just completely ravaged in the space of 24 hours. Uh, if you look at the patterns and trends for industries all across the world, the two industries that were first hit are tourism and events, uh, and they will be the last industries to recover based on what I'm learning and seeing. And for us, we had to establish a war room where the leadership team came together and we just needed to go through the process which every business went through. One, where are our cost centers? How do we reduce our cost centers? How do we stop hemorrhaging and bleeding? Uh, do we need to increase our comms cadence? The answer is yes. Uh, how do we communicate with our customers and clients? How do we communicate with our core team in place? What are our Worst case scenarios, what do we need to do at 80% revenue loss, at 60%, at 50%, at 20%? Uh, at, for an events-based business, so we're talking pretty dire numbers in terms of revenue reductions. And so we said, if we want to survive, um, not only do we need to first stop the hemorrhaging and bleeding, but then we need to consider what is our new reality for the next six to 12 months. And for us, because we can't do online, uh, face-to-face classes in real life, uh, we pivoted to online streaming of classes. And this was an idea that we considered for 2022. Uh, in the space of a weekend, we launched online streaming of our classes and launched that to our vendors or our customers. And in some respects, the coronavirus sped up our product development by two years. Mm. I mean, I think it's it's amazing. It's it's also been my sort of learning of this whole whole thing is how fast you can move. And just interestingly, hearing your story and why it took us down this rabbit hole, as you said that you spent one weekend wireframing your entire site, and you're still using that work today. And now you spent one weekend turning your site into a video streaming platform, and you'll probably still be using that in five years' time. Um, Absolutely. So, so the one thought that I really do enjoy is that that although this this thing is massive and it's hectic, it's also it's not unusual. And I think people sometimes when they're in business forget how fast things can happen. And when you started your business, you didn't necessarily, you know, have all these business books locked into your head and you were like, We have to follow this due process and we have to do this. And sometimes a really good idea can can you know, pop into your head, be shared with somebody, turned into something else, put online and be flying in 24 hours, 48 hours. You know, it doesn't have to be this long and painful sort of process that I think so many people believe it, it should be. I absolutely agree. I, uh, I give a lot of talks in terms of sharing my business story and I get up and often I don't really share the secrets and tips that got me to where I am. I usually share all the mistakes I made. I, find, I make, and I find these stories a lot more engaging. It gets a few laughs and people engage with it a lot more. But one thing I always do say when I'm in front of people is that I failed my way to where I am today. And 
I will fail my way to where I want to be in 10 years time. I'm just mm -hmm. making mistake after mistake after mistake. And I just kind of think that after a while, you run out of mistakes to make. <laughs> so, uh, and again, no, no real secret there. Just I just go out there, I have a crack at it, I'll make mistakes, and that's part, part of the process. And I iterate, and that's it. How how's the how's the uptake been on the the video you know on the video conferencing side of things? How how's it been in terms of you know people jumping on board? Surprising how many people have jumped on board. Like I said, I think necessity inspires genius. And when you're faced with a situation where you swim or you sink, you, you're going to learn how to swim, and you're going to learn how to swim pretty fast. Uh, you know, we've had these video conferencing tools for many, many years. We've had uh, the ability to connect with each other and we've had uh, all these software solutions which are so readily accessible to everyone. And we've just ne never really had the impetus to ad adopt them and use them at scale. And the coronavirus has really inspired that. Now, Ross, what's been really, really interesting about this process is that it's really opened up this idea of relationships for me. I think in times of crisis, when there's so much uncertainty, we don't know when this thing will end. We don't know what the full impact will be. We don't know at the other end of it, what the world will look like, what our new normal will be. So when times of uncertainty and crisis, what I focus on are my relationships with people, relationships with customers, relationships with business partners, relationships with mentors, et cetera. And what has come about as a result of the coronavirus is that I'm picking up the phone and I'm talking to customers that I don't normally talk to. I'm connecting with people I don't really usually connect with on my day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And I felt connected. I felt a deeper connection. I felt a lot more enriched. And just seeing my customers put up posts on Facebook about their new classes that they're streaming online, it's a, it's makes it really it's a really nice feeling and i think i would say that that's probably been one of the biggest benefits that i've seen come out of this so far and what do you think uh, what do you think i mean we had our, our virtual forum the other day and and we've added a thing onto our update sheets and one of them is your biggest current fear mm. um, so everyone shares what their biggest current fear was and mine is that things will go back to normal that we we won't learn you know from this experience and that i look back in a year's time a year and a half's time and we're still trying the same things we were trying before it all hit because you know we're we're, we're fundamentally behaving in a completely different way now than we mm. were a month ago <laughs> and some of it's some of it's not better but a lot of it is much much better so how do you hold on to that that you know, that, that clarity and that insight that you have because you have to have it. And how do you carry that beyond, you know, whatever? Let's say they come up with a vaccine in a month's time and everyone can go and run mm. around and do whatever they want again. What, what's to stop us from going back to the old patterns and old behaviors that we've always, always relied on? Because I think that's, it's human nature. It's, it's very best. As soon as you given half a chance, you suddenly slide backwards. Absolutely, Ross. I think that is such a great question. It's a brilliant question. I think about that a lot. I, I think that we have a tendency to fill up our days 
with lots of meaningless things and to keep busy. It's like that junk drawer that we have in the kitchen. You know, you open it and then at, at, when you first move into a house, there's nothing in there. And then a month later, there might be a measuring tape and then a spare battery. Then six months later, there are knives and there are forks and then there are passport covers. And over time, it just accumulates with no seeming sense or rhyme or rhythm. I'm actually picturing the very drawer that you're talking about, which is the middle drawer in my kitchen. I'll, I'll send you a photo of that drawer after this. Uh, Please, I would love to see it. I'll send you mine as well. And I find that if we use that as a metaphor for life, I think in life we tend to fill up our time with things that keep us busy but might not necessarily have any meaning or impact on the overall engagement we have with life. And I must say that being forced to self-isolate and be distant, I started doing things which, which I haven't done in years. So for example, I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, couldn't get back to sleep. So I picked up this book called Educated by Tara Westover, turned to the first page, by page three, I was hooked. And I did not put that book down until I finished the book at seven o'clock that same day. And just that simple act alone just gave me so much joy and then the other day I went for a walk around the block and for the first time in many years, I heard someone practicing the cello and the sound of the cello practice was coming through the window out into the street. And it was one of the most beautiful sounds I've heard in a long time. This crisis that we're currently in has really forced me to slow down, remove the non-essential and just focus on the things that give me joy. And that's been a really big learning for me, such that I would put that to the side for a second. My best friend gave me a call and said to me, Kim, I feel so sad and lonely with this whole isolation thing. How do you do it? And I said to her, well, at first I was focusing on removing all the things that made me sad. But then now I focus on the things that give me joy. And I find that when my joy expands, such as reading that book or going for a walk and hearing people practice music, the sad things don't really seem so significant anymore. And to your question before, Ross, I hope that as we navigate through this crisis and we go back to our new normal, that some of these lessons are carried on in a thoughtful and intentional manner because this crisis has really forced us to hit the reset button and to really examine the things that fill up our day-to-day -day lives and really ask ourselves, are they important? And in my own experience, I found that most of the things I was dedicating my time to weren't really that important. And so, I mean, this is, the, I mean, it's a very powerful, a powerful thought. And, and, you know, one of the reasons I wanted you on this podcast is, you know, we work on the, the GCC together um, and we met in um, Deauville in France. And I followed you on Instagram. And if you go into your Instagram, it feels like you live this idyllic life where you are in a different country every four or five days um, doing the most phenomenal things like it's interesting to hear you say that you filled your life up with too many of these things you know how, how did you how did you get your yourself and your business to this place that you can actually not have to be in an office all the time or if you're working remotely actually sitting at a computer and and spending eight hours a day engaging with people how did you how did you get yourself to that point and and i suppose the follow-on question to that is how do you think that'll change based on this new insight that you have one of the 
thoughts that I shared with you earlier is this idea that I love being surrounded by people who I think are smarter than I am, who I respect, who I admire. And a lot of that attraction really stems from the fact that, hey, these people aren't really that different to me. They, they, uh, they wake up in the morning, they have family, they have people that love and adore them, they have work, they have a community that they might feel a sense of obligation and responsibility to. So if they're not really that different to me, then what are the things that they do and what are the habits they do and what are the philosophies that they subscribe to that make them able to live this incredible life? That's really my starting point. So I've, I put a lot of thought and energy and time and intention into surrounding myself with people that I admire and respect. And through our own networks, so a lot of these people, I would say, are leaders in business, family, community. And one thing that has come at me and has jumped out at me over and over again is this idea that as a leader, the highest compliment that we can ever receive as a leader is when people don't need us anymore. The highest compliment a leader can receive is when your Mm. people don't need you anymore. Or if we flip that upside down and look at it upside down, it's that if people, if you build a business where you are required to be there, you are required to answer questions, you are the bottleneck, then you have failed in your responsibilities as a leader. Um, And then the reasons for that could be varied. It could be ego. It could be because maybe you love being there. Maybe it gives you a sense of purpose, et cetera. But I've always really believed that my job as a leader is to grow people so that one day I'm not there anymore. And in terms of my business, what I did notice was that as I focused on growing people and bringing people in, often they were a lot better and more effective than me in those performing those roles. And it would get to the point where the team would prefer that I wasn't in the office uh, because maybe I was distracting. At one time, Ross, I walked uh, into the office, got out of the elevator, and there was this beautiful table set up with the most beautiful decorations and plates and settings. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I can't wait. And then my team said, Kim, this isn't for you. This is for us. Like You don't even need to be here anymore. <laughs> and that, I thought at first I was a bit offended, but then I got my ego in check. And I thought, you know what? This is, this is a wonderful thing. And from that, moving onwards, I always made sure that I would communicate to my team, one day I'm not going to be here. The reason you're here is I think you're better than I am for this role. And I'm really here to be led by you. And this was a message that I would communicate to my team over and over and over again. And I would say that two years before I made the announcement that I was stepping out operationally from my business, uh, Mm. no one, it came as a surprise to no one. That day in the all team meeting at the end where I announced that I would be stepping out operationally and other people would be moving in, um, no one batted an eye. I think everyone saw it coming for a long time. So the transition was seamless, I would say, uh, because it was something which didn't come out of the blue. It was just a work in progress that was reiterated over and over again. And everyone had come to expect it. Can you share some of the the sort of strategies or tools or, or things that you did in order to sort of build those people? Like, how did you, you know, how many people did you do at a time? How did you identify who you needed? What did you actually do when you say you're building people? What is that, you know, for someone listening, what does that practically look like? Building people, that process was very painful for me, I must say, because to start my business in the first few years, the skill sets required was a lot of hustle. 
a lot of quick decision making, a lot of you know, just getting things done. Whatever needs to be done, no excuses, no discussion, just get it done. Even if it's not perfect, perfect, just do it. And I found that that skill set was great at the for the first few years, but then for the growth years and the removing myself years, it became more of a hindrance than a help. And so I really had to understand that for me to remove myself, I would have to change my way of operating. And so it became less of here are the answers and this is what we need to do to more of, hey, I'm here to coach you because you probably have the answers yourself and I'm just here to create the environment and space for you to come to your own conclusions and then to have the courage to communicate those conclusions and to execute on those conclusions. Practically, what that really means is that uh, if someone came to me with a question saying, hey, Kim, how do we handle this customer? Hey, Kim, uh, what's our process here? Hey, Kim, how do we do a refund? Hey, Kim, this customer wants a special deal. Uh, rather than answer the question, I would step back and I would say, great question. What do you think? Mm. And that was my go-to line. Great question. What do you think? Or great question. Have we encountered this situation before? Great question. Have you encountered this situation before? Great question. What are the options? Uh, which option do you think is the best one? Uh, mm. So the tenant, I had to really fight against the tendency to answer the question, even though sometimes I might think the question, the answer is very obvious. And I had to really focus on empowering other people to think and empower them to come to conclusions and to execute on those conclusions. And if you look at it on a macro level, it's really about being a coach. That's the way I look at it. A coach doesn't have a question, they have the answers, the, the coach asks the right questions and let people come to their own conclusions and answers. So, and, and how did you, I mean, I, I love, I love that. I love that forcing people to answer. Um, there's also that, um, the hero's journey, not the hero's journey, the, it's in the ear training where you switch from being the hero to being the coach. So you stop, you stop disempowering people by saving them and start empowering them by making them save themselves. Mm. Um, how did you how did you decide which the right people were you know and and how do you how did you put yourself how did you put people in a place where there was something that you used to do that nobody else could do that now they needed to do mm, that's a great question the first part is how do you make sure you have the right people and how do you choose them and mm. for me it really falls back to values and having crystal clear clarity on what my values are or what the business values are and making sure that those values are alive inside the business. Uh, what does that mean? So for example, am I hiring people based on these values? Am I constantly communicating these values to the team in our huddles and our meetings? Am I constantly referring back to these values? Am I celebrating people based on living and breathing the values? Am I firing people for contravening these values? Am I willing to take a financial hit because I believe in these values? Uh, that is really the first thing because I find that if you get the values right, then any, everything else kind of falls in line. Skills you can teach, etc. you can teach, but get the values right first is a foundational thing. Um, and the second question, can you repeat the second question for me, please? Um, it's in how did you, so it was, how did you know you've got the right people and how mm -hmm. do you, how, do you, how did you 
replace people in a space where only you could do it when you must not uh, sure what the skills were uh, or what you know like yeah. what the gap is so that, that that second part is a really interesting question and i still struggle with that all the time and it requires me to get my ego in check I, there's a funny meme that goes around that says i want people to do what what i do but they do it and what i found in my experience is that it doesn't really, it really happens. And I have to be okay with people delivering 80% of the results and just not fussing over the final 20% because I would have italicized the word a different bets away, or maybe I would have color coded the cell in the spreadsheet a different way, or maybe they didn't use the right indentation on the paragraphs. So I really have to work on letting go of those things that maybe doesn't matter. And really, really appreciating that people have different skill sets, people have different modes of operation, people think differently. So those things, they bring different value to the table. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when I brought on my assistant, I constantly corrected his work, his email drafts, I'd fix up the phrasing, I'd fix, fix up the words used, I'd change, I'd change how we formatted things, I'd give him feedback all the time. And eventually got to the point where every single piece of work that he did would come back to me for approval. And that really slowed down our decision-making and it slowed down our pace of work. And then after, after about six months of this, one day I noticed that his workflow was increasing and he was doing a lot better and I was a lot more engaged with work. And so on our weekly uh, coaching session, I asked him what changed. Uh, I feel like you're a lot more engaged and your quality of work is better and you seem a lot happier. So what changed? And he said to me, Kim, what changed was that you started saying to me, Hey, I trust you with this. Now you go off and do what you need to do. And then you just got out of my way. And that, that really resonates with me because I think that for me, the tendency for me is to fix things so that it's perfect and just give feedback constantly. Whereas for him, what he needed from me was for me to trust him and then get out of his way. And so I, uh, I apply, I think about that a lot when I work with people. That's very powerful stuff. Um, how do you, uh, I suppose two questions just to close out. Um, the first one is how long did it take, you know, from when you started this journey to when you were able to actually step out of your business? And then just to, to close it out is, How's this, how's this been affected with this, you know, this whole uh, COVID-19 thing? And, and, you know, like, is it, has it pulled you back into the business? Or are you still managing to, to you know, like, how, how have you found a role in this without now getting back in people's ways again? A year five was really the decision that I made that I wanted to eventually replace myself. And it wasn't until year seven that I replaced myself and stepped out of the business completely. Uh, for reasons I shared before, uh, I see that my role is a coach. So I needed to coach people from year five to seven and also to make sure that as a leader, I wanted to get out, out of the business's way so the business can grow and it can be led by people who are better than I am. You can elevate it, uh, to a place higher than I could elevate it myself. Um, so it was year five to seven that it really happened. Uh, since the crisis happening around the world, uh, the day-to-day -day operations are managed by our CEO, which is one of the original business partners. He loves being a CEO. He's very good at it. He's very talented. He looks at the numbers constantly. 
And so I haven't really needed to be in the day-to-day -day ops from the business. For me, my support of We Teach Me is more sending information back to the CEO saying, these are the patterns that I'm noticing all around the world. These are the potential opportunities. These are the government grants that we can apply for. Uh, and it's really supporting him as a leader and helping him. And it's, it's really a wonderful feeling, I think, that to share with you something which I shared with a close friend and I said that you know, we start our businesses because it creates a life that we envision, right? It allows us to travel, it allows us to lead, it allows us to work on our leadership skills, it allows us to create something which is a reflection of how we see the world. And that's a very powerful thing. But sometimes what once gave us wings can become our prison. Sometimes what once gave us wings can become our prison. And in respect to where I want my life to go and where I see my life in 10 years time, I needed to learn my lessons with We Teach Me and then have the courage to hand off the reins of We Teach Me to the next generation of leadership so that they can take it further than I could take it. Yeah. That's really... It's a really lovely thought. I mean, do people ask you the annoying question of what are you, what are you going to do now? Are you going to be, uh, going to be uh, a serial <laughs> entrepreneur and like rush off and start 50 other businesses? Or? Do you know, Russ, this is really interesting. I, uh, if you had asked me 12 months ago whether we teach me formed part of my identity, I would have said to you without pause, absolutely not. I have so many other facets of my life. I have my family, I have my friends, I have my community. We Teach Me is just one small part of what I do with my life. And then the funniest thing happened, which was when I stepped out of We Teach Me, the decision that I made to step out of We Teach Me, I went through this intense period of mourning and sadness and loss. And that hit me like a truck. I did not foresee it and I did not expect it at all. And my learning from that process is, wow, maybe it is a big part of my identity. Maybe I did care mm -hmm. a lot about it a lot more than I anticipated. And when I was going through that period of sadness and loss, I wasn't very rational. Even though I had made the decision to step out of We Teach Me, I was trying to hold on to it. So I'd jump back into the data and I'd look at it and I'd call the teammates and I'd say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you reached out to this customer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was this weird, weird conflicting i want to leave but i want to stay at the same time um really really interesting and i think about that a lot too i mean i can totally mirror that i think the first sort of week week and a half of of being in lockdown here in south africa they've they've shut the whole you know everyone's locked in their houses basically and i went through all the stages of like is nice we're gonna survive do I want nice work to survive? Mm. You know, it, what do I do if I don't have nice work? What am I, t you know, like there was just this whole, this range of emotions that I cycled through and it was essentially like a period of mourning. And as soon as mm. I was done with that, I was then able to go, okay, what now? Like now that, now that I've gotten all that out of the way, what now? What are, what are we actually going to do? Like, are we going to shut it down? Are we going to, and you can make more sort of, 
rational decisions once you've been through all mm. the irrational i mean i actually remember getting irritated with my wife because she was like well maybe you should shut it down and i was like well you don't understand you don't understand <laughs> this is like, you know and then like a day later i was like why did you react like that it makes no right. sense you know like right. it is a a very valid question to ask mm. in a time like this like mm. are you going to fight to keep something that you don't necessarily want mm. um you know, and, and once you've gone through all those questions, you can then make informed decisions based on all these emotions mm. that you've cycled around in your head. Absolutely. I, uh, in terms of what I want to do next, Ross, one thing that I've always communicated to people around me is that at the end of the day, at the end of my life, when I'm being lowered into the ground or burned up or what, what have you, that I would like to say that I've lived an extraordinary life in all senses of the word. And I do find that with all the lessons and skills and experience that I've learned with my business, We Teach Me, in business, all the tools, having a vision, having a mission, leading with values, how to make sure the values are alive in your business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What gives me so much joy now is taking those exact same tools and bringing it back into the family, bringing it back into my community, and I am getting so much joy and fun and doing that, going through that process, mm-hmm. having uh, this conversation about, hey, what are our values with my mother and father and my little sister at the dinner table? Or to talk about what is our, what is our reason for being here? Who's going to miss us when we're gone? How do we make sure our values as a family is alive and well amongst our aunties and uncles and cousins? And it's, it's uh, infinitely more fun. And brings me a lot of satisfaction to know that these tools that we learn with our business, our business might die and might fold over tomorrow, but who we are and what we've learned, we carry that on with us onto our next grand adventure. And that's what excites me. I think that's a lovely note to end this all on. Kim, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And thank you for putting on a shirt um, to do the interview. I do appreciate it. <laughs> wore the uniform of radio which is a great t-shirt it's um, very important um so so thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it my pleasure and thank you for your wonderful questions uh, it was a very introspective interview and i enjoyed it cool so thank you very much for listening you have been listening to radio which is a podcast made by entrepreneurs in south africa um, we hope that if you listen to this and you think somebody should should hear it that you pass it on because I think sharing knowledge is one of the greatest things you can do with your time and your energy um, and if you've appreciated it please uh, drop a like or whatever wherever you can um, quick shout out to EO South Africa sponsors to LabourNet and Bidvest you guys are absolutely amazing and probably the greatest companies to survive the COVID-19 challenge And if you are an entrepreneur and you're looking for support in this time, uh, I'd encourage you to go to um, eonetwork.org and find out more about the Entrepreneurs' Organization. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you in the next one. Cheers, Kim.